Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lucuter. Today, Kyiv takes heavy fire. That Russia's decided to take this to the next level and attack innocents. It has been a deadly weekend as Russia's attacks intensified. Now Ukraine's president is appealing to the G7, calling on leaders to bolster his military's air defenses and to put a price cap on Russian oil and gas. Is the world heeding those calls? Ukraine's ambassador to Canada joins us in moments. And line change at Hockey Canada. It's a good step, and uh, I don't think it's a day of celebration because I think we're at a critical juncture right now within the game of hockey in our country. The CEO and entire board resigned amid growing pressure. But who will step up, and will this be the meaningful change so many have been calling for? MPs are ready to hop over the boards. Plus, a national inquiry into the convoy crackdown. Protesters, police officers, and politicians are expected to testify. We'll look ahead to the Emergencies Act inquiry. This is Power Play. Now let's get to the players. We remain committed to holding this Russian regime to account and to supporting Ukraine, including with financial, humanitarian sanctions and military assistance. We will continue to support Ukraine and democracy against Putin's authoritarianism. Ukraine's president is calling for tougher sanctions on Russia and for G7 member countries to back a hard cap on Russian oil and gas exports. Following a meeting with leaders today, Volodymyr Zelensky said on social media that there needs to be, quote, zero profit for the terrorist state. Zelensky also renewed his call for enough air defense capabilities to stop Russia. On the ground in Ukraine, officials reported more airstrikes today. It comes after widespread attacks across the country yesterday, including in the capital, Kyiv. Russian, miss Russian missiles killed at least 19 people and wounded dozens. Busy intersections, parks and tourist sites were targeted, knocking out power across much of the country. And today in Poland, Defense Minister Nita Anon committed to more members of our military to train Ukrainian forces. In the coming weeks, Canada will deploy approximately 40 combat engineers to Poland to help Polish forces train Ukrainian sappers on engineer reconnaissance, explosives, mining and demining. Minister Anand also denounced the recent attacks as a brutal war crime. So what's at risk if Putin closes in on the capital and our allies meeting Zelensky's call to action? Let's find out. Joining me now is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. Welcome, ambassador. Thanks so much for being here. I wanted to ask you first, we've all seen the images, but really it doesn't do it justice. What is happening on the ground right now? How bad is this? So actually when I was driving here for the interview, and thank you for inviting, a lot of people in Kyiv were staying without electricity. Mm -hmm. So the families with small children was not able in even to prepare the food. Because as today our Minister of Energy said that almost 30% of the uh, energy infrastructure was hit within the last two days by the missile attacks. And because the part of this uh, grids are now being restored, um, we are the big part of the countries are without electricity mm -hmm. and they are feeling this for several hours a day 
just so we have this capacity uh, for all of the country to do. The big uh, city Lviv, which is in the western part of the country, the whole night is without the electricity as well, just so we can save part of that capacity to be able to prolong. And that's why it is important what, what today the President Zelensky called is to increase the Ukraine's air defense mm -hmm. system. Because Russia precisely within these two days attacked on the critical infrastructure before the winter season, before the cold and frost is coming to Ukraine. So it's terrible effects, but how concerned are you that Russia will go even further? They're not going to stop at this. So what we are seeing with Russia, it was the act of the terrorism that has mm -hmm. been prepared for the several days and weeks. And the thing is that Russia is running out of, of that ammunition. So mm -hmm. because of the tough sanctions that all of our allies imposed on Russia, they have more and more limited access to the technology and their ability to build more weapons, to build more technological weapons, it's much weaker. The thing what they are now using on, on the ground is the kamikaze drones, Iranian drones. And there is, for example, just yesterday, on there was 83 missiles um, launched on Ukrainian territory mm -hmm. and 17 Iranian drones, kamikaze drones. So this shows also the desperation of Russia, because they, the, this country is losing on the battlefield. And we saw that in, in, in the September, was in the beginning of October, when we managed to liberate the territories. And now uh, these attacks on the critical infrastructure gives us the, the call for our allies to protect the sky. So on that, I mean, Zelensky has asked for an air shield for Ukraine. At one point, he'd asked to close the airspace over Ukraine. That wasn't going to happen. So this air shield now, at this point, how fragile is Ukraine's air defense, defense system right now in terms of being able to defend itself? So, of course, it, as we see about the, the yesterday's and today's mm -hmm. attack, yesterday, half of the, uh, our air defense system managed to tackle half, half of the missiles today, bigger portion. But, of course, like... 83 missiles hit within the several hours, it's huge. And we need to increase our air defense system to protect first the big cities from, from just the civilians. Because you saw and you told it that many of them hit, for example, the uh, children's playground mm -hmm. and the, the just the crossroad. And the second is to protect the critical infrastructure so that the country will be able to provide the basic electricity, water supply, heating, and so, so on. So how much more do you need then from allies like Canada? Canada announcing today 40 more trainers for Operation Unifier. Is that enough, or do you just need more of that critical uh, military equipment to actually fend off Russia? We need both. We need both the training program, and we value Canadian support in the uh, restoration of the Unifier, both in the UK and in Poland. But as well as we need also the uh, armors, the armed vehicles to protect those soldiers which will be trained uh, by the Unifier project uh, with the artillery. And of course, coordinating and helping Ukraine to uh, have more air defense and anti-missile systems. So is the G7 really stepping up then or are they falling short? 
the, this today is a very important meeting with the G7, and tomorrow there will be the big Rammstein meeting with mm -hmm. the coalition and coordination meeting for, for our allies in terms of the supply of the weapons to Ukraine. And we are sh I think these two days showed already to everybody that uh, we need all together to help us to prevent from this massive destroyment of, of the Russian missiles. And that's why this air defense system is a crucial for us now. So you want more? Of course. Obviously. Yes, obviously. So is everything falling short right now, or is it just meeting the need for now? And we're seeing it intensify. So what's your message to Canada today? If you had to sit next to either Christian Freeland, Melanie Jolie, Foreign Affairs Minister, or Prime Minister Trudeau, what is your message today on what Ukraine desperately needs right now from Canada? Ukraine needs more weapon supply and Ukraine also needs what we have been discussing and already starting to, to, to get the support is also the humanitarian support. Mm -hmm. We call it winterization program because the winter is coming. And there are many of the communities uh, where the apartment buildings are totally destroyed, where there is no heating, no water supply. And winters in Ukraine are snowy and frosty. So to help uh, our communities to prepare for the winter season, that is also another important thing where uh, we value the support and the commitment of Canadian government to help us. Yeah. Ambassador, that's all the time we have. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Canada's ambassador to uh, Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yuliev Kovalev. Coming up, Hockey Canada cleans house with the CEO and entire board now stepping down. How does the government want to move forward there with their investigation into Hockey Canada's handling of sexual abuse claims? Our panel of MPs will weigh in next. Power Play is taking a timeout. Stay with us. One of the most critical pieces to this to this organization and to sport as a whole in our country, which I think Hockey Canada can can be a beacon for here, is about you know making sure that our, our efforts and our number one priority is the well-being uh, and the health and psychological safety and wellness of those young girls and young boys and families that are a part of our organization. After months of criticism and a week of condemnation from politicians, sponsors, players and families, Hockey Canada's board and its CEO have been iced. Starting back in the summer, the organization was rocked by allegations that Hockey Canada was using player registration fees to finance secret funds which could be used to settle sexual abuse claims. New leadership is expected to be in place by December 17th. Now, here's how it all played out. Hockey Canada announced Scott Smith is out of the top job effective immediately. In a statement, Hockey Canada says the entire board of directors has also stepped down, recognizing, quote, the urgent need for new leadership and perspectives. It comes after the interim board chair, Andrea Skinner, resigned from her post this past weekend. Now, Skinner's resignation followed a widely criticized Heritage Committee appearance last week. Where she said Hockey Canada was being made a scapegoat for sports with cultural issues. MPs were united in calling for leadership change, and now they've got it. So what's next? Well, let's take that to our MP panel. Two of them were members of that Heritage Committee who were there to grill Hockey Canada, and now they're here. Liberal Anthony Housefather, Conservative MP Rachel Thomas, and NDP MP 
Lindsay Matheson. Thank you all for making the time. We appreciate you being here. Mr. Housefather, let's start with you. Use any hockey analogy you want. A full line change, the whole board has been benched. Either way, the CEO and Board of Hockey Canada has resigned. How confident are you that this will actually lead to that meaningful change that you guys have been calling for? Well, I think this is a great step forward, and I do have to say that this happened because MPs from all parties worked together at the Heritage Committee last week to effectively put Hockey Canada in its place when it refused to recognize any of the faults that it had and simply used that Trump-like strategy of saying the press was at fault and they were totally fine. Uh, so I think this is a great announcement. Scott Smith leaving is incredibly important as a signal, but we need to know who is going to be on the interim management committee. For example, it's a great announcement, but if the interim management committee is formed of executives that surrounded Scott Smith at Hockey Canada and were the same people that worked with him to settle this 2018 claim, um, then it's not quite as good an announcement. Um, also, we need to make sure that we know that a new diverse uh, athlete-centric board of directors uh, is going to be appointed in December or elected in December and until we know the identity of the new board and we know that they will be pushing for women to be present, knowing that they're going to be pushing for the athletes, we have to keep on top of this. And I think that's what Rachel and I and our committee are going to do. So let's go to Ms. Thomas. I mean, some have said the organization was like an old boys club. There's a lot of people in hockey, but it's actually kind of a small community. So how do we make sure that the new board isn't cut from that same old cloth? Mm -hmm. Well, I think Anthony's hit on some really key notes here. Um, you know, number one, first of all, let's let's just identify the fact that this took far longer than it ever should have to finally get to this place where the CEO and president, Mr. Smith, uh, along with the board, have decided to step down and for there to be, you know, a, a full a full cleaning of the house, if you will, a clean slate. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the initiative. However, going forward, I think there's some really big questions that need to be answered. So, you know, for example, now, you know, the, the organization is tasked with putting a board of directors in place. Who will be those board of directors? What is that process going to look like? You know, who is that nomination committee um, or nominating committee for the board? Um, what criteria will they be looking at? Will that be transparent for the public to be able to see? And then once that board is put in place, they will be tasked with the responsibility of putting in a CEO president. Uh, how are they going to do that? Will that process be transparent? Will we be able to see the criteria put in place that are going to be measured? Um, further to that, once the CEO is put in place, you know, what what changes will be brought about in order to ensure that uh, that the culture really does change internally within this organization? So these are all of, of the important questions that many, many, many Canadians have. And of course, as members of the Heritage Committee, we have as well. Yeah, and Ms. Matheson, I think another important question is that now if those who are responsible are gone, but there continue to be concerns about the registration fees that may have been used to pay off accusations of sexual abuse, how does that committee or parliamentarians in general really sort of work after getting to the root of what happened after these people have resigned? 
Um, well, yes, it's very clear that uh, that new open elections have to take place uh, and that the Heritage Committee, um, and I guess it's easy for me to say this not being on it, but they have a lot of work to do um, to, to dig into that. Uh, they have a lot of work to do to ensure that whomever that new board is and that new CEO comes before uh, the committee and answers the questions that Scott Smith never did. Um, they, they have to provide that accountability, that transparency to parents, um, but also to taxpayers. And I think that it's it's also a key point that the Heritage Committee has to look into is how this, this uh, occurred for so long. Ultimately, the government mm-hmm. um, allowed uh, for some of these funds to be used in an inappropriate way. And so there has to be um, new accountability measures. There have to be there have to be investigations into that, and and there has to be um, more oversight. Clearly, uh, which is why uh, my colleague who sits on the Heritage Committee, Peter Julian, uh, is asking for Sports Canada to conduct a thorough audit of Hockey Canada's finances since back into 2016. So all of that has to happen, and there has to be that thorough reckoning. Yeah, and Mr. Housefather, when you talk about sort of following the money, I mean, at this point, the money, the federal funding has been cut off. So what conditions do you want to see before any kind of federal funding is restored to Hockey Canada? Well, I think we need to get the documents that we're missing. We need to see the Cromwell report. What are the recommendations that Justice Cromwell is going to make? We have to understand how Hockey Canada is going to put them in place. And we have to understand also whether or not they're satisfactory recommendations. And we need to get the answers that we were missing from Mr. Smith um, and so far from Ms. Skinner and Mr. Brendamore. Uh, namely, uh, why were parents not told about these funds? Uh, why were these cases um, hidden away um, and, and, and settled in these very strange ways with lots of money being thrown at the problem to hide uh, the victims from the world and not let them talk? Um, we need to really understand that the culture has changed. We need to understand that people are in place who have a commitment to change this culture. Um, and again, we have women's world championship teams. We have people like uh, Mr. Kennedy. We have, we have great people across Canada that can come in and take these positions and can come in and advise. We just need to make sure this happens. Yeah, Ms. Thomas, I was going to ask you also, like, how does that happen, though? Um, I mean, we've rarely seen MPs from different parties so united on this as at that committee. So are you all united on the path forward here and how we choose this new uh, this new board for Hockey Canada? Mm. Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand, you know, the kind of the journey that we've taken so far. And so really what initiated this study at the Heritage Committee was, you know, this question around public dollars, taxpayer dollars. How were they being used? Was Hockey Canada using them in order to, you know, perpetuate this culture of cover-up and secrecy and so that's where this all started and uh and here we are you know about six months later we have a board of directors and a ceo slash president who have offered their resignation because at the end of the day they just weren't able to answer the questions that need to be answered or flat out refused to um there was there was very little transparency if really any at all instead it was it was again it was this continual cover-up this continual secrecy and so i think going forward in order for the government to return uh, to a place of providing some funding to Hockey Canada, my hope would be that the government would put in place some very significant metrics um, with regard to Hockey Canada. 
in order to be able to determine whether or not they have met a standard um, in order for that funding to be continued. But until that standard is met, then no public dollars should be reinvested in this organization. I mean, Canadians love hockey. We're very proud of this sport. We want to be equally proud of the organization that leads this sport in so many ways. In order for Canadians to regain that confidence, in order for parents and players and spectators to regain that confidence, there, there need to be some significant changes made. And it's up to the federal government to determine what those metrics will be in order to return funding. Ms. Madison, I've got less than 30 seconds, but at last week's Heritage Committee, then interim Hockey Canada Chair Andrea Skinner warned Canadians the lights would go out at hockey rinks across Canada if there was this kind of change. I haven't been to a rink today, but I'm pretty sure the lights are still on and there's still <laughs> Zambonis that are running cleaning the ice. So what do we need to see to make sure that we're going forward in the right direction? And what do we need to see from a new management team going forward? Well, I think that dedication absolutely to eliminating that toxic culture, that's key. And so uh, their transparency, that accountability that the, the other committee members had talked about, um, that our party certainly will be looking uh, for in terms of that movement forward, that new leadership, uh, that's that's what it's all about ultimately at this point. It's for parents and, and the athletes themselves and, and those spectators to feel comfortable. Um, and this isn't only just about Hockey Canada too, right? This is this is across the board, and we see a lot of that toxic culture in in sport. And so, uh, I think that these are valuable lessons that we need to have applied um, across all institutions, across all organizations, and for the federal government to really delve into entirely. And certainly, something a lot of Canadians will be looking at. Anthony Housefather, Rachel Thomas, Lindsay Masson, thank you all for being there. Appreciate it. Well, coming up on Power Play, we have um, Alberta's 19th Premier stepping up to the plate. And her sovereignty plans take center stage. How does the opposition in that province plan to fight that popular pledge? When we come back, we'll put that question to Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. She's coming up next, so you stay right there. I have said that when things get decided by the Supreme Court, that we will abide by the decision of the Supreme Court. But you bet, we're up, up until that point, we are vigorously going to defend every area of our, our constitutional you. jurisdiction. Welcome back. A new leader takes the helm in Alberta. United Conservative Party leader Danielle Smith was sworn in as premier earlier today. But her signature, her signature campaign policy promise seems like it's under revision. It's called the Alberta Sovereignty Act. And if it becomes law, it could give the legislature the right to refuse provincial or federal laws that violate Alberta's jurisdictional rights. It has sparked backlash across party lines, including from former Premier Jason Kenney. Now, her team says the act would respect Supreme Court decisions, but says it will still shake up the way Alberta engages with Ottawa. But Premier Smith has mandate from the UCP, however, not really from the people of Alberta just yet. She hasn't gone to the polls. So should the Alberta Sovereignty Act be the top priority? 
Let's find out. Joining me right now is the Alberta NDP leader, Rachel Notley. Welcome, Ms. Notley. Thank you so much for making the time today. I want to dig right into this Alberta Sovereignty Act. It's the key promise from Premier Smith. Her transition advisor says the act will support the Supreme Court. And we know the act isn't drafted yet just yet. But would the NDP support a revised version of this act? Uh, we wouldn't uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, let's uh, go back to where we were. The sort of reframing of the act by her, her, you know, one of her chief advisors is rather a bizarre turn of events uh, that we've seen just over the weekend. It contradicts exactly what she has said all throughout her campaign and also what he's written in, in papers on the matter. So, uh, um, so the the chaos and 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 the uh, um, the conflict that is that is created by this act still exists because no one now understands what they mean. And quite honestly, I would argue that that the the threat that is there and and the different interpretations that happen on a day by day basis is the exact kind of uncertainty that is going to chase investors away. If the premier and one of her most senior advisors can't get their story straight on what the act is designed to do. How in heaven's name can uh, investors thinking about uh, contributing to Alberta's economic growth uh, feel confident uh, that they're looking at a province that respects and understands the rule of law? So what does it say to you that, that, that has happened behind closed doors between her election and, and then this weekend when things seemingly changed? Well, it says to me that, that that they are very chaotic, that they they don't understand the issues that they're talking about very well, or conversely, that they were deeply deeply cynical and very intentionally lied to the you know forty thousand or so uh, Albertans who voted for uh, Ms. Smith in her leadership. Uh, now, I would never suggest that those Albertans uh, represent the mainstream of the province, but they are the people upon whom she's relying for the position she currently holds, and it just uh, uh, means that there will be even more conflict and internal uh, uh, uncertainty and chaos within the UCP and, and none of it bodes well for the kind of stability that Albertans need to see uh, when it comes to working on the affordability crisis, fixing our health care and ensuring that we have the kind of economic growth that will create sustainable long-term jobs for the future. She also suggested today, Ms. Smith did, that Alberta would go back to the Supreme Court over things like the carbon tax ruling. So should Alberta really be in the business of relitigating Supreme Court rulings right now? Well, normally when the Supreme Court of Canada makes a decision, they kind of stick with the decision. And I, I uh, you know, if she wants, she can go make an application for it to be reheard. But I think it really is just another empty promise uh, designed to, to, you know, keep her supporters at bay while she tries to keep them on side between now and the election. Um, at the end of the day, I, I suspect it will, will not uh, uh, prove to be particularly fruitful for, for anybody. And it will just be more money spent on, on lawyers to, to lose again. Now, Premier Smith also spoke about Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. She said that she will seek new public health advice. What's your reaction to that? Well, uh, some time ago during COVID, because of the clear demonstration of the 
high level of political influence between uh, the UCP cabinet and and uh, uh, the chief medical officer of health, we had called uh, for uh, our government to establish an independent science panel that transparently uh, considered and made recommendations so that Albertans could hold the government accountable for when they made politicized decisions that, that interfered with the best scientific evidence that we had at our disposal. Um, the same... Uh, call is very much in place now. Given some of the the, the really, again, bizarre uh, opinions that Danielle Smith has has had around healthcare issues and COVID and cures for COVID and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the last thing I would want is for her to select uh, the person who would be giving advice. Uh, if she's a concerned about management of uh, the healthcare system during COVID, she should look to her own caucus who engaged in an incredible amount of political interference such that Alberta had the worst record in COVID management in the country uh, at various times during uh, that pandemic. Uh, but anyway, the answer is a... A, an objective, transparent uh, expert panel uh, who Albertans can have uh, some faith in. Ms. Donnelly, I've got 20 seconds or less here, so it's a really quick question. She's going to be running in a by-election, Ms. Smith will be. Typically, there's a bit of a leader's courtesy among other parties. Will the NDP be running a candidate against her? Uh, we absolutely will be. That particular courtesy is, has never been used in Alberta. My my uh, father um, uh, never. You didn't want to be the first. That. Did I? No. Uh, but uh, what I will say, uh, what is not typical ever in Alberta, is to have another empty seat and to call a by-election in one place and not call a by-election in the other, which is what she's doing in Calgary Elbow, uh, which is, I would argue, a slap in the face to the whole city of Calgary. And it makes me wonder if she's only going to call half an election next May. We'll have to watch to see what happens. Rachel Notley, leader of the NDP, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, stay with us, fighting the Alberta sovereignty all the way to the Supreme Court. But will Danielle Smith's supporters get behind a change to her key promise? The press gallery will dig into this next. Welcome back. Alberta sovereignty that will respect the Supreme Court. It's an amendment to Premier Danielle Smith's popular policy promise during the United Conservative Party leadership race. Initially, she said the policy would let Alberta refuse federal laws and court dealings on issues that are deemed to go against Alberta's jurisdictional rights. And today, Smith is saying Alberta could go back to the Supreme Court to relitigate issues the courts have already ruled on, like the carbon tax. So... Will Smith lose support over the early shift to her hallmark pledge? And should Alberta be in the business of relitigating court rulings? Let's bring in our press gallery to weigh it in. First, right here in studio with me, Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail, the bureau chief there. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Appreciate Always a pleasure. Uh, Fatima Said, who is a reporter with the Narwhal, and our special guest, candidate from Canada's National Observer, lead columnist Max Fawcett. Thank you all for being here. Max, let's start with you. I want your reaction to her change on the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Well, I think a lot of people saw this coming just because of the flagrantly unconstitutional nature of, of the legislation that she was proposing. Um, but, you know, the Rick, Rick Bell, who's a very popular columnist and, and journalist out here in Alberta, 
suggested that she's already basically making the same mistakes that Jason Kenney made uh, around making promises and then not living up to them. And, and I do think she's going to find herself stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of the expectations that she raised during the leadership campaign and the reality of governing, which, which requires you to actually understand and adhere to the Constitution. Uh, and, and I think we're sort of seeing the, the tension play out right now. So, Bob, what does this do to her support so early on, though? Well, she's definitely uh, backtracking on this. You could clearly say that all decisions, she'll respect the decisions of the Supreme Court. But this kind of reminds me of a bit of the playbook of Stephen Harper. He was he would do some of these law and order stuff, mm -hmm. and even though the Justice Department told him this is not going to like this is not going to withstand a constitutional <laughs> yeah. challenge or a court challenge, you're going to get thrown out. And sure enough. Uh, you know, several years later, the Supreme Court would reject these, and then he'd come out and blame the courts for it. Yeah. And this is what probably she's going to do the same thing. She's going to say, well, I tried to do this, but the Supreme Court threw it out. So in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a Stephen Harper playbook which throws red meat to the base, even though in reality none of this is ever going to uh, it become law. I mean, yeah. it's not going to happen because the courts are going to throw out it. And she herself is admitting this, that she will respect the views of the Supreme Court. So, Fatima, do you think that this is the strategic decision as well? Or are you on the same page as Bob here? I mean, look, there's a dangerous playbook that, that is unfolding in Canadian politics right now where if a provincial leader doesn't like something, they yell Supreme Court. And, and that's deeply troubling <laughs> and concerning because you can't do that. Uh, you know, uh, I've yet to hear from, from the new pre premier on what grounds she would challenge the carbon tax, um, what new legal arguments she has that would, uh, you know, contest what the Supreme Court has already unequivocally declared in, in a very frank and damning decision um, about federal jurisdiction over climate policy. Um, without those details, I can only, you know, conclude that she is doing the same thing that all politicians do, which is over-promise and under-deliver. They don't have a climate plan. They don't have a plan to address issues of greenhouse gas emissions or, you know, how to monetize that or how to make revenue for that. There are concrete conversations we can have about a provincial carbon pricing system in Alberta that could help Albertans, but that's not the conversation we're having. But Max, uh, Danielle Smith has said on, on you know, on these programs on our network here basically that look if there's new information well then of course we can bring it back to the Supreme Court does she have a leg to stand on there or is it just again like Bob was suggesting just you know hanging some red meat out there for her base no she she I mean she has the flimsiest wooden leg in political history here to stand on Bob Bob is absolutely right there's nothing here I mean Saying that there there is a war in Ukraine, that that oil prices are higher, that that inflation is an issue, those are not constitutional arguments. Those are those are inconvenient facts. But a court is not going to overturn a constitutional decision on the basis of gasoline being more expensive than it was in 2019 or 2020. So it will get defeated. It probably will get dismissed outright. And I think Bob is absolutely right. She will simply take that back to her voters, back to the base, and say, "Look, they've done it to us again." They're, you know, it's central Canada and these elite judges who are, who are putting one over on Alberta and she'll, she'll use it to whip people up again. Uh, and unfortunately, that might work here. Uh, you know, that, that is a play that seems to do pretty well uh, until it doesn't, as Jason Kenney learned. Um, but 
you know, I, I think she's playing with fire, though, as, as Fatima said. Like, the, the, the Chamber of Commerce in Calgary has already come out and said that they don't need this issue relitigated, that this uncertainty is bad for business, it's bad for investment, it's bad for the province, but it may not be bad for her political fortunes. And I think that's kind of all she cares about right now. But, Bob, a pivot on day one. I mean, how bad of a look is that for a leader, or does she just not care because she thinks that nobody's actually paying attention well, that way? Well, I, I do think that what Max hit on is the, the business community uh, is very unsettled mm -hmm. about uh, the, the relitigation of you know, issues like the carbon tax. They want stability from the uh, Alberta government because the, the economy is doing, finally, is picking itself up in Alberta. They do not need is somebody wanting to have constitutional wars with uh, Ottawa that is going to discourage investment in Alberta. At this particular time, that's not what they need. They've just gone through hell for two and a half years. They don't need uh, this kind of infighting between Ottawa and the, and the federal government. And it sounds to me like she's trying to dampen that down a bit and move on to other issues, primarily health care, which is a major issue all provinces are dealing with. So, Fatima, was it simply the issue of I'm going to do this so that I can get elected within the UCP and then I'll pivot away from it and then try and pivot away from it because they've got an election coming up in May? It's playing victim, right? It's, you know, what can I say that will tap into the emotional uh, consciousness and psyche of the province uh, in the times that we're in without thinking about what is good for the province and what is effective and what will actually help Albertans and, and the rest of the country. I, I, it's a slippery slope, right? You, you start by challenging the Constitution and then you go where, right? Where do you go from that when you lose time and time again? At some point, you have to be a leader, step up and say, listen, it's not working. Here's what we're going to do instead. And, and that's the kind of rhetoric we don't see right now. So, Max, just before we let you go, what does she do between now and the election to sort of get back on, on solid footing? I think she tries to channel... Pierre Poilievre's message as much as possible about cost of living, about inflation, about health care. She, she needs to get as far away from this Sovereignty Act stuff as she possibly can. I think the challenge is that the media here and, and certainly the NDP are, are not going to let her do it. This, this is a major risk to the province and its prosperity. And, you know, and Fatima talked about a slippery slope. All you have to do is look at B.C. Uh, and the prospect of Angeli Apadurai becoming the next premier of B.C., she could use the exact same toolbox that Daniel Smith is proposing here to stop TMX. Uh, so she, she is introducing a, a, a huge element of uncertainty into an issue and into a file that doesn't need it for this province. And I think the more she tries to run away from it, the more, you know, certainly the official opposition is going to try to pull her back. Max Fawcett from the uh, National Observer, thanks so much for joining us. Sticking around for the next round, though, is Fatima and Bob. We'll have you guys coming right back up. But coming up, the commission looking into the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act will start their public hearings this week. On the list of anticipated witnesses, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Will he appear before the commission? Our press gallery will be digging into that one. Stay with us. Power Play continues. actually why, from the very beginning, I offered uh, to appear uh, in front of the Commission, because it's important that Canadians know that the use of the Emergencies Act was uh, a, an option of last resort. And when it was used, it was used 
in a proportionate way, in a time-limited way, and in a measured way to put an end to these protests, uh, these illegal protests. Almost eight months after the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act to end the Freedom Convoy protests, the commission looking into it will begin its public hearings this week. Today, the commission unveiled their list of anticipated witnesses. Stick with us. It's a long one, folks. It includes the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, members of his cabinet, like Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, and Justice Minister David Lametti. Now, how about some mayors? They're of the cities that were impacted from the protests and blockades. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson. Windsor, Ontario Mayor Drew Dilkins. Coots, Alberta Mayor Jim Ouellette. RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky is also on the list alongside OPP Commissioner and the CSIS Director and Ottawa former Police Chief Peter Slowly and the Interim Chief Steve Bell. Got some more for you. And of course, we've got some of those convoy protest organizers, Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, Pat King. The list goes on. We're not going to keep going on because we're going to run out of time. The Prime Minister says he will appear before the Commission. So what is at stake if he does? Let's bring back our press gallery panel, Bob Fife from the Global Mail. Thank you again. And Narwhal's Fatima Sayed. Thanks both for being here. Bob, the Prime Minister says he will testify before the Commission. It's an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented move for a Prime Minister to testify at this type of Commission. What's at stake for him here? Well, he's got to justify why he brought in the uh, Emergency Powers Act. And, you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, who think that the, 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 the police already had the power mm -hmm. to... Uh, they didn't need to bring in the Emergencies Act. They already had the power already to be able to put a stop to what was happening here uh, you know they never took they never uh, ticketed anybody right. they never arrested anybody uh, they sat on their hands for the police as you know you watched them for three weeks doing nothing um, it was only when uh, what we had serious action at the border yeah. when they got rid of the border problems at the Windsor Bridge but they didn't do that didn't need to do that with the Emergency Powers Act this was brought in largely to deal with Ottawa because it was a failure of police leadership in this city. So uh, Mr. Trudeau is going to try to justify why he brought in such a draconian act. And, you know, there's lots of people who agree with him that that was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out at the end. So um, I'm very interested to see what the prime minister has what he has to say under questioning from lawyers and the, and the, and the commission chair who is going to be overseeing this and how he responds to the questions they hear from him. Yeah, and, and Fatima, what does the prime minister really have to gain or lose by appearing before this commission? I mean, you know, like one would think that he's going to try and give his explanation for it, but he could get caught here kind of flat-footed, as Bob was saying, not really having a leg to stand on. Yeah, well, this is a test of leadership, right, Michael? Like, it's it's a test of, you know, can the prime minister prove that he acted as the best leader in that time? Um, and, and can he answer those questions transparently? Because one of the things that I am concerned about as we head towards this inquiry is how transparent are all these witnesses actually going to be? Uh, you know, we've had inquiries in the past where, where ministers have invoked, uh, you know, cabinet confidentiality. Um, this is... Uh, a platform for for them to explain to Canadians how big decisions are, are reached. And let's not forget, this was the first time this act was ever used in Canadian history. So we really need to understand what went right, what went wrong in the event 
um, you know, God forbid, that it, it has to be invoked again um, in, in another sort of situation um, that demands it. So I am hoping they'll be transparent. I'm hoping that it will be, uh, you know, a tough test of, of leadership for the prime minister and all involved. And, and I can't help but notice that there's an absence of provincial leadership on, on this witness list. And I don't know what to make of it, except to think that, you know, a lot of this was happening in Ontario. And, and we don't really have any of the Ontario ministers uh, being called on by the inquiry. Um, this was a multi-level, multifaceted either, problem. Right? Yeah, it was a multi-level, multifaceted problem across two different provinces, and yet provincial leadership is absent from this list. I would also like to hear from the conservative opposition, mm -hmm. because they were out there egging these people on. And yeah. I think it's worthwhile to say, what was your rationale for thinking it's okay to go out there and encourage people to break the law and to hold a city like Ottawa hostage? A city that they work in. Uh, they work in, and they knew what was happening in downtown. Yeah. People, for anybody living downtown, couldn't sleep at night because of the honking of the horns. They're posing for pictures and they with were them as well. Wrecking people's businesses. A lot of people went yeah. un went under for that. I, I mean, I I don't know whether he's uh, the commissioner is going to do this, but I hope he does. Yeah, Fatima, I want to come back to you on cabinet confidence. Does it not only benefit? the Prime Minister to sort of open the door behind the scenes and to finally sort of wave some cabinet confidence to justify why he did it. In other cases, in other testimony, like before We Charity, he claimed cabinet confidence for a lot of stuff. Do you expect that here because it would only benefit him to sort of open the door to Canadians behind what his decision was? I mean, I think so, and I think it would be it would be great for this to be a, a transparent look behind the scenes at how leadership functions. We don't get that a lot in Canadian politics, and and I worry that even an inquiry like this one, which is unprecedented and historic, um, will fall into soundbite lane. You know that they it will become political theater, uh, where they will only say what they want Canadians to hear or what they think will help them get reelected. Or, or keep them in office. Um, I think this inquiry is a test of leadership. It's a test of the political system, and it's a test of a policy. Um, and and I'm hoping that uh, both on both sides, we're going to see some tough questions and some transparent, uh, candid, and hopefully extremely honest answers. Because I think Canadians deserve that. And Bob, I know you were saying you want to hear from some conservative leadership, but in the end, could this commission actually be a gift to them? Uh, potentially. Um, I mean, I still don't think, as I've said, uh, that there was any justification for invoking that uh, act and that the police already had the powers and they could have could have ended this uh, occupation in Ottawa as they did the occupation on the Windsor Bridge with mm -hmm. the same uh, police powers. So, yes, I think they, they could have, but, um, but that doesn't distract from the fact that uh, the, the conservatives were egging on, some mm -hmm. of the conservatives were egging on people to occupy the downtown of the city. And it ended up spreading to the Windsor Bridge, and that's when they started to backtrack because it was, they realized that, you know, it was, it was the lifeline of, the, the, of our economy is, goes over that bridge, and they started to backtrack off of it. But they have to answer for it as, yeah. as I myself. I think they have to answer as well. And Can Fatima, just in? very quick, like a 10 seconds, do you I think that it would, uh, it could backfire on the Conservatives as well? 
I, I think so. And I think the inquiry really needs to reconsider calling them to the stand. Because if this is about cause and effect and impact, they're as implicated as is the leadership that was in power making these decisions at the time. I appreciate it, Fatima and Bob. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got to leave it there. That's your Power Play Day in Politics. Thanks so much for joining us and for spending your time with us. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.